Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey everyone. Valentino Stoll. Hey now. I feel like I've been gone forever. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And uh, yeah, this week, uh, we're gonna, it's just us. We're going to talk about um, full text search. And uh, Dave, you've been playing with that a bit. I've played with probably just one angle of this lately. But yeah, since you uh, recommended it, do you kind of want to set the stage for us? Yeah. So I think the first thought when I hear full text searching is don't do it. <laughs> and, and I say that jokingly, but I'm also very serious about that. It's one of those premature optimizations that we often run into. So just as a preface, only listen to this if you know that you have reached that precipice point where now you do need it. But if you're starting out a new application, I would not dive into full text search right away. Because it does add a certain level of complexity to your infrastructure and to your application. So uh, there are, but assuming that you've been doing just the normal querying, you've done as much optimization Uh as you can, and now you are reaching a point where you have enough data where it actually makes sense to do full text searching, or if you have the very specific needs of needing to have weighted results and stuff like that, and you've kind of outgrown just the normal database querying side of things, then it does make sense to introduce some kind of full text searching. And as far as I know, there's uh, three or four different major paths that you can go. With the easiest being PG search, which is the full text search within the database, or if you're on PostgreSQL. And MySQL also has a full text search built into it now. Uh, Actually, it's been in there, I think, since version 5.7 or something, which is long deprecated now. So Mm -hmm. version 8 does have it in. But then you can switch over to a third-party service, which is adding more into your infrastructure, but it also has more capability. So uh, the old tried-and-true one has been Elasticsearch. And for anyone who has hosted an Elasticsearch model or uh, application for some period of time will have ultimately been utterly burned by it with it just dying or running out of space or something horrible. But then uh, after enough pain points that people have experienced with Elasticsearch, there's been some new companies come up. And one that I've used a lot lately is MeleSearch. And it boasts to be very powerful, like Elasticsearch, without all the complexity. Yeah, though. So I've been using SearchKick, and it works with OpenSearch and Elasticsearch. And to be perfectly honest, I don't even know what the difference is if one's a fork of the other or whatever. But OpenSearch. Uh, due to some licensing, I think, with AWS, they had to shift and do something different and call it something different. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, I I don't know. But I think it's an AWS thing. Uh, it looks like it's an Apache licensed... Oh, it's Apache licensed. I thought it was Apache Foundation. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I've I've used it. I used it in my last client, um, and yeah, it seems to work pretty well. But yeah, I mean, I implemented it, so I hadn't gotten to the crashing and dying and burning up my app. So, and it's one of those things where if you do use Elasticsearch, MeleSearch, whatever kind of full text search, do not use it as a data store. And I think that's one thing that I've seen in multiple situations where people have just been utterly burned by is that that index is no longer recreatable because records have been deleted on the database side or something else has happened or they were just using that full text search engine as its own data store, which I think is a huge mistake. I think that you should always be able to recreate your index which is basically like the 
uh, the storage of all the data that is now searchable within these mm-hmm. full text search mechanisms. And if it's not recreatable, then you have to be like tiptoeing around very careful in how you interact with that full text search, which is just a horrible experience. And it makes lifting and shifting that environment very complicated because now you have to extract all that data to reload it. Right. Yeah, I've only used it in the sense of having my primary store in Postgres and then running a re-index periodically, right? So when I save something or, you know, on a cron job or, you know, every so often on Sidekick or something like that. Yeah, and I think um, SearchKick is one of like the most pleasant experiences when uh-huh. using a full text search, uh, specifically with Elasticsearch. And that's the one that I used for a long time. And it's still running on some of maps in some regard. But in, it's no fault of Andrew Kane who created SearchKick. It's more my issue with Elasticsearch in general mm-hmm. because I have had situations where the managed service that I was using... So this was hosted with AWS. And they were managing the Elasticsearch on their own. I was just consuming mm-hmm. it. So you pay a nice pretty penny for that. But it just died. And it would not come back up. I could not connect to it. I had not made oh, any man. changes. It just happened randomly. And I'm like, well, crap. Now you cannot search for any episodes on Drift Ruby. Mm-hmm. So I yanked it out and just did normal querying the database for a long time. And that actually worked really well. But it's gone to a point now where I have enough content where I'm kind of outgrowing that phase where you can just paginate through yeah. a bunch of results and I need more targeted results so or weighted results. Mm-hmm. So I've reintroduced full text search in there. And for a year or so, I was using MySQL. And I did some fancy MySQL queries with uh, weighted results using their full text search. And... That worked okay, but it wasn't ever really great. And it wasn't really getting um, accurate results. So a few months ago, I actually switched it out for Melee Search. And I'm self-hosting my own Melee Search instance, which is uh, very lightweight on resources. And because I'm not populating it with too much data, it's actually very manageable to work with. One drawback is that it is a single node instance. So you cannot cluster it. You don't have high availability. Okay. But um, it's also something where it's, you know, it's a great solution. So uh, that's what I've been using lately. And it's actually been um, much more accurate and better. And we can dive into it a bit, but I've also basically, you know, let's, Throw in all those buzzwords. It is AI powered now. So, Ooh. so I have I have a couple of questions, right? Because I've been looking at Open Search and Search Kick for for top end devs, right? Because I'm I'm in the same boat as you are as far as the amount of content. I think at this point we've published more than forty five hundred podcast episodes over the last. Wow. I don't know how many years. And so, yeah, I mean, I want people to be able to search it. Um, I'd like to be able to prioritize it with the more recent stuff, right, at a higher priority. You know, but if you're if you're searching for something and the more relevant, you know, keyword matches, you know, come up with, with earlier stuff, right, I still want those to show up because they are relevant. Um, and so, yeah, I've been trying to figure out exactly how to put that in. I mean... Lately, I've been working on some other angles on top end dev, so I haven't even put it in yet. But um, it's definitely on my list of things to get done this summer, and so that's what I've been trying to figure out. One thing that I have a question about is um, we've been getting transcripts done on all the past episodes that didn't have them before. Um, mm-hmm. We did transcripts for a long time, and then we quit doing them for a while just because it was too expensive. But yeah, now we're just throwing it at. I think it's Whisper AI powered 
something or other that that we're using and uh yeah so now that we have all those transcripts and you know most of them are pretty decent not always if it's a like the name of a gem that's not a standard word or if it's a person's name it doesn't always get that right but yeah you said that your uh, melisearch uh, model wasn't too large and so it wasn't as fragile or something like that um if i'm feeding it 4500 transcripts of 1 hour podcasts am i going to overwhelm the thing no <laughs> you're still talking about 4500 records right you know and within there you're talking about one attribute of one record having 1 hour worth yeah. of transcribed data and well, I'll probably pull the show stupid. notes too, but yeah. Yeah, that's all relatively small. Right. And there is an actual, uh, there is a limitation. So mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Elasticsearch, you do not have any kind of limitation for record size. But with right. Melasearch, there is a 2 gigabyte limitation. So if your oh, I'm not gonna hit that. transcription was like, a year's worth of someone reading the Bible or something, yeah, you're not going to be able to store that. That's going to be over two gigs, probably. But right. since you're talking about just a one-hour segment of transcribed mm-hmm. audio, that's going to still be in the kilobytes yeah. of data. Right. Right. So I can just shove all that stuff in there and then make API... or Yeah, basically, it's going to make API calls into the Melisearch yeah. server and get the data back. How fast is it? Because the open search stuff seemed to be reasonably fast and mm-hmm. it got me good results most of the time. I would say um, you're probably going to have about 50 millisecond search time. I can live with that. 50 to 100. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is really quick. Yeah. And the more memory you throw at it, the faster it's going to be. So uh, a few years ago, I purchased a reserved instance that's a two-core, four-gig uh, RAM, mm-hmm. uh, AWS instance, and that's where I'm hosting it on. And it's not even using 400 megabytes. So, I mean, it has so much room to grow. It's been a while since I've had to, like, prop up a full-text <laughs> server. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, from scratch. But, uh, you know, the, the last I remember, you know, doing it the freeway was with Solar. Right, Apache Solar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot about Solar. Solar and, and Lucene. So, I mean, yeah, they all use the same <laughs> same engine as Elasticsearch, right? Lucene. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean, most of them are probably going to use that because why not? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious why you didn't reach for like something like Solar, uh, you know, which has Sunspot as an example. Java. Um, Java. I mean... Yeah, I'm just curious. Java. Java. Because Java, Java, Java. Java. <laughs> uh, no, Sunspot, um, it's an interesting one. And I like it. But for me, if you've ever set up a Sunspot solar instance with the Rails application, it works. And it works really good. Uh, or really well, sorry. But... It's one of those things where much like Elasticsearch, it's a matter of when something goes wrong, and then you're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. So while it is really powerful and really good, I think it just has way too many moving parts, especially if you were using it um, with multiple web services and you've set up your own Sunspot Solar instance. Because I think the default path, if you followed like the Ryan Bates episodes from way back when or mm-hmm. uh, the documentation, it's all just kind of assuming that you're running this locally on your own machine because you're essentially running a rate task to start up the Sunspot Solar Instance instead of having it hosted or uh, through a managed host. So it, it's just one of those things where I've actually had to go deeper into the um, Sunspot Solar running instance to troubleshoot and debug and set up some things. And it was just really annoying because now you're having to deal with Java and the Tomcat Tomo files and mm. just the nastiness that's all behind there. 
Unless this has changed recently. Looking at the repo, they now have uh, some Docker con- con- excuse me, containers and chef scripts and stuff. Uh, even Ansible support Kubernetes. I mean, so maybe this is easier to do with a lot of the more modern infrastructure uh, tooling, yeah. right? Sounds um, like it. But yeah. I, I, I haven't used them, so <laughs> I don't know. You may still have those problems. I do remember... Uh, from doing solar, like upgrades being a thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, which is why maybe using something like MeliSearch or Elasticsearch, you know, not that you don't have no problems because you still have to upgrade Elasticsearch uh, as an yeah. example. But uh, ha- having that higher level support definitely changes things. I will and, admit, I never really did anything with solar. So, uh, MeliSearch isn't all you know, rainbows and sunshine either. Uh, actually just did a upgrade from MeliSearch 1.1 to 1.2 of my servers. And uh-huh. it was kind of a pain because they do not have a direct upgrade path for your database. Oh, really? And the database is locked to the version that you're running. And, you know, it's just the same story that you find with PostgreSQL. So what I ended up having to do was uh, do a dump, start up the new instance, import in the data. And huh. in my case, um, the way I have Drift and Ruby set up is that I can take down the MeliSearch running server and it's going to add about 500 millisecond latency to your request, but then it'll fall back to normal active record query. So I have a redundancy plan in place for when MeliSearch goes down, but uh, what I did was I just deleted all the data, just changed the version, and then re-indexed everything and right. everything just came back up. So um, that was my approach to upgrading. But if you're dealing with tens of thousands, millions of records, that's not feasible. Right. Especially if you were seeding in a lot of data. Uh, it, that's just not realistic. So you would have to go through an upgrade path I just wasn't interested in for the uh, few thousand records that I'm actually posting on there to go down that path. Right. That makes sense to me. That's probably what I'd wind up doing too. What has been your like biggest win with using MeliSearch? Uh, more accurate search results. I would say, because the way they're doing the waiting is really interesting. So uh, you set it up and configure it very similar to how you would with SearchKit, but the weighted results is basically just in the uh, the appearance that they show up in your configuration. So if you want the title description to be the highest uh, ranks, then you just put those at the top of your searchable attributes and then they're going to be the heaviest weighted results. And so uh, after I implemented Melee Search, I started adding in other things. So that's when I started using some of the hosted AI things that I've been doing with um, uh, OpenAI Whisper that I'm self-hosting. Uh, do I started doing all the transcriptions and closed captions. So that then gets uploaded into MeliSearch as well. So similar to like what you were doing, Chuck, um, this is now my MeliSearch instance is hosting one attribute that's very large because it's the full transcription. So if you did a search for anything that I verbally said within a video, then that's going to show up in the search results. If there's something in the mm-hmm. title description or in the code show notes, those are going to have higher weights to right. something I verbally said. But if I was mentioning one little thing, and hopefully the transcription was accurate because it's all done by AI, then it's going to show up in the search results. That makes sense. One one thing that I'm wondering about, because it's it sounds like we've kind of gone from... Uh, doing the database searching to, you know, with something like PG Search or whatever, to using an external system like MeliSearch or OpenSearch or Elasticsearch to now seeding it with data that we get from 
an AI system that's doing some transcriptions and things. It seems like the next logical progression to this is something like a chat GPT for your website. Is, Is that even a realistic thing at this point? I think Algolia just released something around that. Yeah. So Algolia is like a yeah. Elasticsearch competitor, right? Uh, they just have they have this AI search and discovery uh, platform now, which looks pretty interesting. Um, it seems like the step you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I just to go back though, with Dave, with your setup. So when you post a new video. Does it just automatically generate the transcript? You don't have to go and submit it to anything or do anything. Yep. Oh, I would love to figure out how to do that. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't in my basement. So, because, I mean, hosted services are expensive when you're talking about machine learning. It is not cheap. Especially depending on what kind of model you're wanting to run. If you're talking any kind of large language model, if you're able to do it on consumer GPUs, that is going to be exponentially cheaper than having a cloud instance running with that amount of GPU VRAM needed. So mm-hmm. uh, I am using OpenAI Whisper, which I'm using their large model, which takes about 6 to 8 gigabytes of VRAM to mm-hmm. host on a RTX 4070 GPU. And that's... I have the model running. I've not fine-tuned it. I've been playing around with fine-tuning it because it is just my voice that I'm transcribing and doing the closed captions for. So that's going to be like the best case scenario for fine-tuning a model. Mm -hmm. But I'm just using their default large model. And uh, I'm taking that in, doing the transcriptions. But to interface with it with my Rails application, I am using uh, API calls. So I have a Flask application wrapping that model. So my Ruby on Rails application just makes an API request to the Flask app that then does all all of the transcribing and then gives the response back, store that in an uh, action text storage Mm -hmm. or blob. And then that gets automatically updated and uploaded to Melasearch. That's cool. So just to kind of open up some of this a little bit. So uh, your Rails app's hosted in the cloud. So it just hits your home IP address. And it gets tunneled through to your server in your basement. And then um, why did you put a Flask app around it instead of like a Sinatra app or something? Well, because just interfacing with the... Because it's all Python code. Oh, it's all Python to begin with. Yeah. So having the Flask app, it's just easier to set it up that way. And just the code for the Flask app, it's like 20 lines of code. It's very manageable and stuff. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Right. Because essentially what you're doing is you're just capturing whatever it sends in, handing it off Mm -hmm. to Whisper, and then responding with whatever Whisper gives you, right? Yep. Makes sense to me. And so I was joking around and, you know, I, I do feel this way. I think microservices are an anti-pattern for architecting an application. But in the sense of machine learning, when you have something like a whisper model and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, turning that into a microservice so you can interact with it with any kind of API, uh, it's... That's, I think, the real use case for microservices, where you have a bunch of these small microservices, or in these case, large language model microservices, and you're able to interact with them from multiple applications. So actually have multiple mm-hmm. apps using uh, these large language models that I'm hosting. So not only is that cheaper, because I don't have to spend the same amount of VRAM to do that, but then I don't have to... Um, you know, change anything up. It's all, they all use the same API. They're all using the same interface. So it's very easy to work with and manage. Makes sense. I, I still, I have so many questions. I'm just going to keep going <laughs> unless Valentino says, I, I have one, but 
<laughs> I, I guess the other question I have, because I, I, I definitely want to set something like this up, and I know we're kind of deviating from the full text search a bit. But um, so if I wanted to set this up here and I have a computer that could run it, I probably have to put a little bit nicer uh, video card in it. Um, yeah. Does it just, is it smart enough to say, oh, you've got a video card that has enough VRAM to do this stuff? Or, yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll let you in some of my dirty secrets that you can do to make this so much easier. Uh-huh. Um, one, you need a way to play around with this. Right. And let's say, you know, first you need a computer. So, you know, check. You got your computer. You need a graphics yeah, I have one card. of those. Check. I have a couple of those. Yeah. But now, let's say, uh, and an NVIDIA graphics card. You can mm-hmm. use uh, AMD, but you were just going against the grain. So, an uh, NVIDIA graphics card. And let's say this computer, what are you using it for? Is it now dedicated to AI? Or do you want to play Diablo 4 or some other game on there? Right. Now, is it going to be a multi-purpose? So here it comes, as Valentino mentioned earlier, Docker. Dockerize mm-hmm. this stuff. You're, you have a little bit of overhead, uh, but it is so much easier to work with uh, as far as your lar- large language models and stuff. So when, as I'm developing these, here's what I'm doing. I have my Windows machine and uh, my Windows machine has a stupid, ridiculous graphics card in it. Mm-hmm. The, it's a 13900K uh, CPU with 64 gigs of RAM and a RTX 4090. I mean, it is a ball-in machine. It's awesome. Uh, but it's also my gaming machine. So mm-hmm. I bought Diablo 4 and I've been playing that, but also want to continue doing my machine learning without having to dual boot into Ubuntu. So right. what I've done was uh, I have Docker installed on there that I'll spin up when I'm actually wanting to do some machine learning stuff. And I run Portainer on there to just easily remotely manage the images. Because I don't want to be on my Windows machine doing the development. I want to be on my Mac doing the development. Right. So uh, I have a Jupyter instance set up on there. And Jupyter is a notebook system. Mm-hmm. So it's a Markdown compatible notebook that is compatible with um, uh, Python in the sense that if you have some Python script, you can just hit shift enter and then it'll execute that script in its own little isolated environment. And that includes the ability to run machine learning models. So you can do all your testing out in your browser choice on your computer choice while it's all running in Docker on this other machine. And so that's how I kind of just played around with the playground with this stuff. And once I kind of got it to a point where, okay, yes, this is working the way I want, I then just copy that notebook or the relevant bits of code of that notebook into its own project. I then you know create a Git repository for it, push it up. And then I pull it down on my other machine that I have behind me uh, which, if you're watching the video, it's a little matrix thing going down, mm-hmm. but that runs a RTX 4080. So it's a bit lighter GPU, still crazy, stupid, expensive, but um, that GPU is then hosting the actual model, running the flask gap. And then mm-hmm. that's also, um, uh, it, got, it has the ports open to then be able to communicate with over an API. So that's where I'm actually hosting it. And um, if, if I need to do any kind of tweaks or anything on there, then I can just launch uh, VS Code with remote SSH and then shell right into that machine. It sits headless on my shelf. So it doesn't have a keyboard monitor or mouse plugged into it, but it doesn't really need it because it's just my little headless server that I play around with. Cool. I might have to pick your brain a little bit more about it. But yeah. That's cool stuff. Yeah, we did an episode uh, where Dave broke down a lot of this. I forget which one that was now. (laughs) Uh, We'll have to find it. Yeah. 
if Chuck ever implemented Melasearch and transcriptions on DevChat, <laughs> then we would be able to find it. Well, <laughs> give, give me a couple weeks. <laughs> I'm curious uh, how you're handling the ingestion process of Melasearch. Like, uh, they have this... I, I'm seeing in the documentation here, they have, like, uh, this no, this internal queuing system for, like, uh, ingesting documents with tasks, which seem like, you know, sidekick, mm-hmm. but for Melasearch specifically, uh, what's been your experience like using that? So in the models that I'm using Melasearch, I'm using that helper Melasearch and I pass it in queue truth. You know, that's like probably the first and foremost thing because if there is ever a problem with your running instance, you don't want that happening in line in the request that is updating a record because then you're going to get yourself into a situation where the whole website appears to be down. So I do push it into a background job. And then I have a couple of different helper methods within there. I have attribute, which is saying, what do I want to be indexed? And that's where I have the list of all the different attributes, including the ones that have the transcription body. And then have the searchable attributes, which is basically like the weighted results of what are the attributes I want to have searched on and which ones are the most important. And that's where I have like the episode name is the highest, then the summary, then the content or the uh, the code body of the show notes, and then the transcription body last. So... Um, those are like the two most important ones. And then you can get into some of the ancillary things like filterable attributes or sortable attributes, depending on what you want there. But I mean, it's, it give, when I first saw it, it really gave me the uh, search kick vibes to it. It's almost like the Melisearch team saw what Andrew Kane was doing and loved it and then just re implemented it with their own version of a much more simple Elasticsearch. For those not familiar with Elasticsearch, like the process is you define all of your mappings up front, right? You say, okay, these are all the fields that I want to have for this particular document, uh, which is in the index. And then only then can you insert, you know, data into those documents in the specific, you know, fields that you want to index, right? And you can do partial indexing on those fields, but I really like how you Melasearch has it. So it seems like you you define those as you insert them, right? Yeah. And let's say if, um, for example, with DevChat TV, Chuck wants to go ahead and implement Melasearch because that's the uh, easiest bang for the buck to get going. It's top-end devs now, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Top-end devs, DevChat. Sorry. Uh, so you implement it and now you're like, you know what? I want to make this better. I want to add in transcriptions in here as well. So now you have basically a schema change within your Melasearch data, which uh-huh. if you're doing Elasticsearch, it's not going to like that too much. But with Melasearch, it's really nice because uh, each record will basically have its own schema. That's not really accurate, but let's go with it. So... Um, as you are updating a certain model within Melasearch and you do a full re-index, it's going to start re-indexing new records. Well, if you've added in the transcription attribute to something that you want to be indexed, then some records will have it, others will not. Elasticsearch just freaks out with that kind of thing. But Uh with Melasearch, it'll just start adding it in. So you have records with different schemas, essentially or different attributes. So that's why I say it's not really accurate, but it kind of is. So um, doing changes like that, especially on an application that you're maintaining and evolving over time is really important. And that's one thing that really drew me to Melasearch. So can you re-index old records with the new attributes? Yes, absolutely. And there is a uh, model.reindex bang that will do mm-hmm. all of that for you, just like Elasticsearch, or right. I'm sorry, just like SearchKick did. SearchKick does, yeah. So uh, it does that in batches of 1,000, I think. But you can do it in batches of much smaller if you want. 
which Chuck, if you are going to be on top end devs uh, doing the transcriptions, then you are going to have to do it in batches of something like 10. Because you're right. talking about doing the full transcription of episodes, which there are post limits that you can do to mail a search. Which uh-huh. I don't think is a mail search issue, but more just a HTTP issue. Yeah, I'm really starting to get into the AI end of things as far as like what the capabilities are. But it's interesting to just see, oh, okay, you know, this search problem can mostly be solved with, you know, something like MeliSearch. Now, um, SearchKick is kind of an interface library between Ruby or Rails and Elasticsearch or OpenSearch. So is does MeliSearch work with SearchKick or do they have their own gem or how does that work? They have their own gem. It's Melisearch dash Rails, uh-huh. and then that gives you uh, that adds in the Melisearch library, which um, is kind of like the Elasticsearch library that SearchKick adds in to interface with the actual running instance of Elasticsearch or Melisearch, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, if you see Search show up on top end devs anytime soon, it, it's Dave's fault. I did the work, but it's still his fault. You're welcome. <laughs> it's something I've wanted to add in for a while, but I've mostly been just focused on the UI and making it easy for people to play and use the thing. But um, yeah. one one thing that I'm finding is that um, for, for my own stuff, right, if I want to link out to something, or I know we talked about this in an episode, just for me to find it and reference it so p- other people can use it is where I want it anymore. So... Oh, and this may be the deal sealer for you, Chuck. So if you ever do a Google search and you're searching for a phrase or something, mm-hmm. it's not Google itself is not very good at searching for a phrase because no. it'll try to group the words together, but it'll just find does this page contain those words? Right. But you can actually put double quotes around that phrase and then it does a search for that exact phrase. MeliSearch has that built in with the oh, double nice. quote search. So you can do that double quote search for that must include. And then you could also add in or chain in any other word. And those are also then going to be a part of your search. No extra double, work for that. Double quote fracking Cylon. Double <laughs> quote. And there I just, it'll get transcribed and it's going to mess up my results. I'll get this and wherever that other quote is. I'm, I'm curious if you've uh, <laughs> hit any of their known limitations yet, Dave. <laughs> On Melisearch? No. No? No, because I mean, uh, there is a really good article and I'll post it on uh, the chat here to include in the show notes. But it's basically a table from a company called TypeSense, which is another type of search but I mm-hmm. haven't used them, so I didn't want to say much about them. The last I checked, they did not have a, a Ruby plugin, so you could you can't really easily use it with Ruby. But what they do have on here is a really good chart comparing comparing TypeSense with Algolia, Algolia, Elasticsearch, and MeliSearch, and what some of the limitations are. And so, if you look at some of the limitations around them. I mean, there's not too much uh, that MeliSearch can't do that Elasticsearch does. There are differences. So you can't do negative keyword searches with MeliSearch. So if you want to exclude something explicitly from the search, you can't do that. But Mm -hmm. I mean, overall, it's pretty darn comparable for a lot of the things that I care about. Right. So there is a maximum index size. So um, index can be up to 500 gigabytes on MeliSearch, which is insanely huge. Uh, I mean, you're talking like super large companies. And at that point, you've outgrown MeliSearch probably. But the maximum number of indexes, which is basically the number of models or things that you're indexing. So not the records, but the actual indexes. So, for example, like episodes or users or companies uh-huh. that you're wanting to search is 200 on uh, Linux or Mac and 20 for Windows. 
So, I mean, 200 is still a pretty large amount that you're able to do. I'm only using a couple of indexes. Right. And then the maximum record size is 2 gigabytes. So each record within one index can be a maximum of 2 gigs, which is insanely huge. If you're hitting those limitations, I think you have bigger problems with the record size. Yeah, I mean, I bring it up. The The biggest thing that jumps out to me is their uh, concurrent request limitation of 1,024 requests at the same time. Which, I guess, if you have that problem, <laughs> maybe maybe you should be looking yeah. at something else anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, even then, um, yeah, 1,024 requests per second is huge. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's that just is... at the same time. They, yeah. they could probably process more than that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a huge trunk. And honestly, if I had that problem, number one, I would be very happy. But uh, two, <laughs> realistically, if I wanted to still use Melisearch for this application, and that was my only limitation I was hitting, then I would just set up a load balancer, which balances the load between multiple of them. And whenever a record changed, I would just explicitly have it upload to different servers. So it would just run that one request four times on one on each of those Melisearch servers that I was hosting. So I mean, yeah, that I, I did like notice the, that they tie it directly to your memory footprint. So mm-hmm. yeah, it makes sense to just distribute it that way. Just balance it. This is pretty like, cool. Yeah. I just like how simple the hosting of it is. Uh, there's not many moving parts. It's a self-contained binary. And then it has its own data store. So, I mean, that's really it. You don't have to have this whole slew of junk like you do with Elasticsearch. Yeah, I mean, the queuing system, too, like built into it, uh, is definitely very appealing, right? Like, where you don't have to manage that yourself as far as indexing. Uh, you know, you just throw it throw it on the queue and it let it deal with it itself. Uh, and you you even get like telemetry data on it, right? Like so you could see how, how fast it's taking the process. What It's really cool. One other question I have on this is, so can you run Melisearch on a server and then have multiple apps create their own separate indexes or whatever on it? I don't know. I'm just using the one. Um, but yeah, uh, I've got a couple of websites I'd like to set up. And so it'd be nice if I could run one instance and then just have everything talk to the same. Yeah. Setup. Um, my concern would be cross talk. Right. I agree. That's what you would want to avoid. I mean, I would have a similar issue with Elasticsearch. So, but, um, there is a, a sense of API keys. So I'm wondering if mm-hmm. you use a different API key, if that would then... If it silos it. Yeah. But it would still probably count to your maximum number of indexes on okay. that server. Oh, so you might have to set up more than one server anyway. Yeah. I mean, if one application has 100 indexes that you're doing, and then you have three others that are 50 each, then you're probably going to exceed that capacity. Not everything in your database needs to be indexed. So if you're just talking like episodes, then you have your episodes Mm -hmm. or show notes or something like that. And that's one index. You don't have to have an index for each individual one or each table. Do you use their paid version or are you just on the open source? I'm on open source. so I'm self-hosting it. I don't know if I can self-host the paid version or what the differences would be. But, oh, um, originally I was on their... Okay, so their paid version is their hosted environment. So I originally went to that. That was my mm-hmm. first approach. And uh, you get uh, 10,000 searches included per month um, mm-hmm. for free. So. The problem was, I hit that in one day. So, <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yeah. I then started doing the math. I'm like, holy crap, this is going to get expensive. So, yeah. uh, 
I switched off after less than a week of being on their hosted environment into my own environment. So I'm like, I, I can't do this because that's going to be very expensive. Yeah, I ran into a similar problem with Algolia. Was I hit their free threshold pretty fast. Which I don't mind paying. But yeah. when a service becomes more expensive than the application hosting itself, then I got a problem. Right. Yeah. Yep. And that was kind of the limit that I hit too. Was yeah, I was I was paying more for the search, or I would have ended up paying more for the search than I would have paid to just keep the app running. And it wasn't by any means the most valuable part of the app. <laughs> so good deal. Well, should we uh scoot along to picks? Valentino, what are your picks? Uh Let's see. Well, uh, we just released at Doximity uh, a project that I've been working on for the past month, uh, kind of impromptu, uh, called Best Doc AI, D-O-C. Uh, and it, it's a new uh, AI product that lets you uh, find the best doctor or specialist for a diagnosis that you get. And so you enter a diagnosis that you've gotten uh, from your primary care physician, uh, and it'll go and it'll figure out uh, what specialist exactly you should see for that, and then match up with the physicians. And w- since we have over 80% of U.S. physicians on our network, we're able to identify those and service them. And it's it's so, so freaking cool. <laughs> uh, I, I recommend you check that out. Best Doc AI. Cool. Uh, how about you, Dave? What are your picks? Um... I think lately, my biggest things that I've been playing around with are WLED, which is a open source software project that allows you to control individually addressable LED lights. And so I've been playing around with that. I wrote a Stream Deck plugin so I can control them from my Stream Deck, which is just a like a macro keyboard. And then also wrote a VS Code plugin that will do syntax highlight checking. So as I type a syntax error, then I have a little lamp sitting next to my desk that will light up red. When I fix that syntax error, then it lights up green. So just a fun thing. And then Jupiter is my second pick. Uh, mm-hmm. I have that self-hosted running. And it's that Python notebook that allows you to just execute stuff. It is so much fun to just tinker around with. I even gone to the kids' Taekwondo lessons with my iPad and we're just playing around with it and stuff. So uh, it's a lot of fun. Cool. Um, I've got a few picks. Um, so last week, I was at JS Nation and then React uh, Summit uh, in Amsterdam. The So fun. Just good stuff. Uh, great connecting with people. Um, did some interviews for JavaScript Jabber. And... Um, Anyway, so I'm going to pick those uh, board games. I'm just going to go to one that I played last night with my buddies. I think I picked it on here before, but I'm not sure. Um, And it is... uh, Here, let me find it. um, It's just going to take me a minute. While you're looking for that, Chuck, I have to say... Uh, you got me onto Dice Forge, and my kids love that game. It is a fun one, definitely. A we fun got one. the expansion, the Rebellion expansion. We've been playing that lately. They love it. I don't think we have that one. We have a different expansion. Um, the the game that I'm going to pick is Star Wars Clone Wars. Um, if you've played Pandemic, it's a Pandemic style uh, board game, and. It's it's pretty fun. It's got a little bit different mechanic because you actually have to fight like the villain at the end. You're just you're just com- completing missions. It's a relatively simple game. It has a board game weight of two point zero nine, and so uh, anyway, it's it's a lot of fun. So we we were playing that last night. It was nice. Um, as far as Dice Forge goes, I'm trying to remember. Maybe it is the Rebellion one that we have. Yeah, I think it is. I think that's the expansion that we have as well. So it's it's definitely fun. Definitely a fun game. 
And then um, a few other things I'm going to pick. So one of the things that was kind of fun about the trip to Amsterdam was the folks from uh, the conference put me up in a hotel that was actually a boat. And so um, I, I, whenever I went back to my hotel, I'd take the ferry um, or the, the boat because they chartered a boat from where we were staying up to the venue because there really wasn't a convenient way to get there otherwise. Um, but then you'd have to walk down the pier to this boat. Um, and so I'll put a link to the boat if you ever wind up staying in Amsterdam. It was really fun. The rooms were rather small. Um, just, you know, you kind of expect it on a boat. Um, but the boat was called Captain Anna and Captain was spelled K-A-P-T-E-I-N. Anna. And uh, anyway, it was, it was awesome. So let's see, let me see if I can find a, a proper link for it. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. While I was there, I also went to the Rembrandt house. Um, and basically it was the house that Rembrandt lived in, um, and they restored it. So it's not, none of it's original and that was pretty cool. And then they, I also went to the, um, the Dutch, I can't remember is Versets museum, which is the Dutch resistance to during world war two, where, uh, it was about all the people who resisted the Nazi, um, occupation. And that was really, really cool cool really fancy so or not fancy but really interesting just to see all the people in the different ways that they uh stood up to the nazi regime and things like that and, and you know some of the history as far as um how and what they did to resist when the nazis first came in and then as time went on right how they they continue to fight them i mean obviously the allies had to come in and liberate them but um Anyway, it, it was really, really fascinating just to kind of see all the history there. So um, I'm going to pick both of those. And then, um, yeah, we we were... Uh, today, we, we did the book club because I was out of town on Tuesday. We usually do the book club on Tuesday morning. And we're doing seven languages in seven weeks. So we were talking about prologue, and I actually found a Ruby prologue library. And uh, I thought that was pretty interesting as far as... Uh, you know, kind of having an engine where you do the more declarative programming instead of the procedural programming that we're used to in Ruby. And so I'm going to pick that as well. So lots of picks. But anyway, uh, th those are my picks. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll uh, wrap it up here. Until next time, folks, Max out. <laughs>